welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm David Goldenberg. Um, I'm a documentary filmmaker now, uh, have been for the last 20 years or so. Um, I'm an anthropologist, uh, had my PhD in anthropology from Brown and when I entered Brown, I originally intended to be an ethnographic filmmaker, but got derailed into uh, working in, in anthropology in Africa and um, then spent my career supporting community development groups uh, all over the world. Uh, I worked in about 36 different countries. Um, and towards the end of that career, I realized that I could easily make films now given digital technology. So I went back and took courses uh, in editing and um, started making films on a wide variety of of subjects. And I guess we could talk about that a little later. Yeah. So thank you, David, for joining us. A little bit later in the show, we will talk about, is it your most recent documentary? Uh, Yes, it is. Right. Okay. So your most recent documentary about the trolleys that used to be in the Edgewood neighborhood and seemingly go all around Rhode Island. Um, but before we get into that, let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading? Um, I read a variety of, of things. I read fiction and nonfiction. Uh, in fiction, I, I like uh, kind of character-based mysteries. Um, I, I've been reading uh, uh, by uh, things by uh, an uh, Icelandic mystery writer uh, called uh, Indrusan, I think it is, is his last name, uh, very dark, but um, kind of driven by the, the characters of his, of the detectives and, uh, and, and uh, the people in, in uh, Reykjavik. And one interesting book I read uh, recently is called Cheapland, Colorado. Um, and it's really an excellent account of um, people who found a place in south uh, eastern Colorado in this very desolate area. Um, the the land at some point had been divided up into five acre parcels, and and it's just this other part of America that is essentially completely cut off from from the mainstream. It draws these people who don't want to be bothered. Um, all, all barely surviving. And uh, the author, again, like a good anthropologist, embedded himself there. He, he actually bought a piece of land. He lived in a trailer. He didn't live there permanently. He went back and forth. Uh, but he, he earned people's trust. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it's an interesting view. It, it, like, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting, there was a book that was turned into the Oscar-winning um, film uh, starring Frances McDermott about about the woman who, who lives, basically lives in her car and moves from one place to another. And that's another whole subset of America. Um, all these people who were affected by the 2008 crash and uh, have no social networks to fall back on, move from one Walmart packing area to another. Um, 
Another another nonfiction book I've been reading lately, um, because I, I, I was just in Santa Fe, and I spotted it in the window of, of a store, which was actually the store, the, the store is located, uh, it, the name of the book is the address of the building where that store is. It's called East 109 Palace, and it's a it's like a 1610 old stucco building right in the center of Santa Fe. And this was the this was turned into the the entry point for Los Alamos during World War II. And um I I actually haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. I I'm intending to go go see it, but um I went up and visited Los Alamos while I was there. And it's a it's a it's kind of an interesting account um, of of all the the ordinary life pressures and the relationship issues um, around all those scientists who were at Los Alamos during World War II. I mean, you know, a lot of focus on Oppenheimer himself, but a lot of other minor characters. Um, so it's quite an interesting book. It was was written uh, some years ago. Uh, 2014, I think. And by a funny coincidence, I'll tell you this story. I was just up in, uh, up in Vermont visiting a friend and I was describing this book and she said, oh my God, I'm the justice of this peace in this town. And in fact, I just married that author's brother to his <laughs> 33 year partner. Wow. Quite a coincidence. They would just happen to be visiting. Yeah. No, it, the. Uh... <laughs> The small interconnectedness of New England branches out even to other parts of the country. Right, of the world, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you said that you haven't got a chance to see Oppenheimer yet, but have you watched any movies recently that you really enjoyed? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm in a film group, so um, we watch films and um, we try to sometimes with success and sometimes not we try to pair films kind of around a theme so uh one person recently chose um to focus on kurt vonnegut and um and one of the films was an excellent uh, uh, documentary about kurt vonnegut and i strongly recommend that it's it's very good Actually, the as a as a filmmaker, I was really interested in how this person approached it because the filmmaker he's he's a very prominent um, filmmaker. Uh, he's he's actually the kind of producer director of um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, and but he had he had this lifelong association with Kurt Vonnegut, beginning from when he was very very young and and so he, he got a chance to film him interview him over god knows 40 years 45 years something like that wow um and i could see i could see his struggles as a filmmaker between his role as a friend and and a filmmaker um because vonnegut was a he was a difficult character um, and he and he and he hurt a lot of people, hurt his his family. Uh, so I thought he did a really good job balancing, you know, what made him unique and and um, and also being honest about it. 
Um, and then, and it, and it was paired with the film Slaughterhouse Five um, of, of of the novel, uh, which I had seen probably when it came out, which was uh, the six late sixties, I think. Um, and I, 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 I felt it didn't quite hold up. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think it made a big impression at the time, and it was in the middle of the Vietnam War, so it was a very strong anti-war film. Um, but as a film, there was there was there was the way it was made is all this sort of seventies camera action. <laughs> um, I really I really disliked the way that the women were portrayed. I mean, they didn't have great source material in that regard, but <laughs> yeah. well, it was also the beginning of women's liberation. There were there were Fair. films at the time. Another film that I saw lately that I liked a lot is uh, Belfast by Richard Brannigan. Um, it's set in nineteen seventy one, I think it is, and it's it's uh, based on his childhood memories as a. Uh, the, the character is, is the central character is a nine year old in in Belfast uh, at the very beginning of the troubles, um, but it's also it's a fantasy because he's it's through the eyes of a nine year old. So his his parents are absolutely heroic and and beautiful. Um, the 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 setting the the relationships of people at the time are portrayed as in a kind of idyllic fashion. And he, he shot it in black and white. And he and he uses the, the music of Van Morrison, who is northern from Northern Ireland. Um and that that so I thought that was a really, really good film. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of really interesting films that you've been watching. Um I haven't been watching too many movies lately, but I did just start watching The Gilded Age with my mom, which was an HBO. I guess it's kind of like between a show and a miniseries because the episodes are very long. (laughs) But it's been interesting to watch because uh, of the connections that a lot of the like upper class elite in New York had to Rhode Island and particularly to Newport. Uh, many people vacationed in Newport, new people who owned property in Newport, um, or, or like I said, owned property themselves in Newport. And some of the, the show was filmed at the different Newport mansions. Right, right. I did, I actually did start, I watched part of the first episode and I wasn't really impressed. And, but I thought I might go back and give it another, another chance. Um, although, I tend to watch series with my wife, so uh, she's she's totally Downton Abbey out. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, it is a very similar vibe. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about her talents for period uh, period pieces. The key thing about Downton Abbey was the wonderful portrayal of both the family and, of course, all the serving class and all their dramas. And the, the original of that was this series called Upstairs Downstairs. Um, back in the seventies, I guess it was, which was, you know, a great thing to. I, and I, I've thought about going back and watching it again, uh, to see to see how that holds up. There is some of the kind of like the the juxtaposition and storytelling of the main uh, elite characters and the 
the help in the different households. And it's even interesting so far in what we've watched in the Gilded Age, seeing how different the like it because there's like kind of two main households that we go in between. One of them is old money mm. uh, and one of them is new money from the railroad. Um, and it's interesting to see even how different their staff are like the old money staff seems very almost like familial with each other because it seems like they've been working together for a long time or maybe even some of the older staff had been working for previous family members so it's like they they feel a real connection with this family and with each other whereas the new money staff it, it feels much much more like a job for them they're mm. cordial with everyone else who works there um and has have some of their own little kind of interpersonal things between each other, but ultimately it seems much more removed and less friendly than the the people who work at like the old money house. Uh-huh. So that's been interesting to see. Let me mention something that's that's sort of funny. I when when you approached me about being interviewed, I saw that you had this interview with um, archivist from the steamship historical. Yes, we talked to Astrid a couple months ago. Astrid, right? Um, and it, and and that's and I I hopped on that, listened to it a little bit because I had some things I might want to donate to them. Um, I grew up in France, in Paris, actually, because my father was an economist with the Marshall Plan, so we were there right after World War II until the mid fifties, and. To be honest, we kind of lived the upstairs downstairs life. We lived as Americans in Paris in those days uh, at a very high high standard uh, with with servants uh, who were part of our lives. And every two years, we would take a steamship home for home leave. Oh. So I have this whole collection of menus. Oh. <laughs> from the steamships from the. The SS United States and uh, um, the Queen Mary um, with their full menus <laughs> from the time. So I contacted Astrid, and I'm going to donate some of these to their collection. Oh, that's fantastic, because that seems like something that's right in their wheelhouse of right. things that they want to collect in terms of, like, the ephemera from steamships. From those, those periods, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it led me to another book, actually. Uh, which I hadn't been aware of, which is uh, David Macaulay's, uh, you know, his work. He's, he's, uh, I think actually he was on the RISD faculty. He, he did all, he does all these fabulous illustrated books about how things work. Oh, okay. Of a castle or of a textile mill. Um, and he had done a whole one on the SS United States. Oh. Because that chip brought him to America when he was 10 years old and made a tremendous impression on him. Um, so I took that book out and, and, and looked at it, and I hadn't even I, uh, been aware of it. I don't know if that was through the podcast or something led me to that. Now that you said about how things work, like with the castle, I think I, I, think I am vaguely familiar with what you're t- that they're like cross-section kind of like diagram exactly exactly right right so the ss united states one has a full six or seven page fold out and 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 the whole and a cut cut side view of the ship sliced in half so you can see 
the first class dining room where our family dined and we always had the table right next to Salvador Dali every night. Wow. Coming back in 1956. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds super interesting. I'll have to see if there are any of those books are in the library. I'm sure they are in the library collection and and take a look at some of them because it does, yeah, all the intricate workings of, of the insides of things. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Did you know that you can borrow everyday household tools or educational materials from the library? Got a home improvement project that needs doing? Borrow a level, stud finder, or outlet voltage tester? Looking to supplement your child's learning at home? Borrow one of our school toolkits, like a microscope, toy cash register, robots, and more. Feeling musical? Borrow a ukulele and instruction book from our Oaklawn Branch Library. To find the full list of items and where you can go to borrow them, go to cranstonlibrary.org cool-tools or cranstonlibrary.org school-tools for educational materials. Do you enjoy knitting or crocheting? Join us at the Auburn Branch every Monday at 2 p.m. for their Knitting and Crochet Circle. Work on a project, get help with something new, or knit for a charity cause. Knitters and crocheters of all levels of experience are invited to join, no registration required. For questions, email auburn at cranstonlibrary.org. So I want us to have enough time to talk about what you had come here to talk about. So uh, to start out, can you talk a little bit about your documentary and and what it's about for people who haven't seen it? Okay. Um, It's called The End of the Line, the the streetcars that created, actually, I've to remind myself. Hold on, I have the link saved somewhere. (laughs) End of the line, the tracks that shaped our Rhode Island streetcar suburb. Right, there we go. (laughs) Yeah, because I had my, it's a long title and I played with it. Anyway, this all started uh, some years ago. Um, I live on Narragansett Boulevard, which is the main road in uh, in Edgewood. And... um, the the street was had been lousy shaped for a long time, um, and one reason was because the streetcar tracks were still under the pavement, and every spring, these potholes would break up. I mean the the the, the cover areas where they'd covered potholes, and and you could look down and see the tracks showing up, <laughs> right there, so. Um, I went to a community meeting, and they 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 announced uh, the city announced plans to finally repave the road, and we were having a whole discussion about okay, are we sure? Because they had just ripped up the road for the water system. They, everybody was saying, okay, is that, are all the utilities taken care of? We're sure we're not going to. I said, you forgot one utility. What about the streetcar company? And they were not even aware that there were tracks under there. Wow. So I sent them a picture. Uh, luckily, the mayor's assistant, uh, chief of staff, was there, and I sent him a picture. And sure enough, a week later, all this machinery showed up, 
and they ripped up the street and they pulled all these, it was a half a mile of tracks out of, from the street. And I uh, asked the workman to cut me some pieces up uh, because I have a good friend, David Karoff, who's a, a welding sculptor. Um, and uh, I, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll save these and, and maybe he can make a nice sculpture. And so that sat around for a few years until COVID hit. And, and then I thought, well, let me find out something more about these tracks because here I am stuck at home, <laughs> but I can access all these sources. Um, and I started this exploration that lasted about a year. Um, and the, one of the great sources, of course, is the digital collection at the at the Providence Public Library, which is really they've done a great job assembling archival photographs from the history of Rhode Island as a whole. Um, but I also I found some uh, there was another uh, there was a Pastori collection at uh, Providence College that had some really nice uh, pieces and and then. Um, uh, there's a, uh, now I'm going to blank on his name and I'll <laughs> get it to you. Um, uh, there's a, a, a historian at University of Rhode Island who came, he was third generation uh, transport driver himself who became the president of the union and then he went back and got a PhD in history and is, is a prominent labor historian. Um, had written a number of books about about the history of, of uh, public transport in Ro in Rhode Island. Um, so he had a collection of all his materials at the University of Rhode Island, um, and I, on a break during you know when we could actually access something, I'm, I went in there. Uh, of course, the the uh, the Rhode Island Historical Society had had things. Um, and 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 I also the Warwick Historical Society is where I spotted first. Is it there? I think I first spotted. No, I actually there they had they had these great ads. Anyway, there are all these pieces that came together. Um, Library of Congress, of course. I also got images from there, um, and I guess in some ways it sort of turned into a. A radio play because I, I enrolled uh, quite a number of my friends to play parts in the film to read from reports or from accounts and the central one is from 1895 to 1900 a woman named Mariana M. Tallman wrote these guides um, streetcar or trolley, no, trolley trips, I think it is, from Providence out. And these are basically aimed at working class people who only got Sundays off. And so for a nickel or a dime uh, for an extended trip, they could go out and uh, take a nice trip to, to, to see um, other parts of Rhode Island get out of the, the industrial center. Um, but her language is just amazing and, and often hilarious, actually. Um, and, and so uh, uh, 
Susan Grasick, who was a, an a educator at uh, working at, at Brown University for many years, she she voiced Mariana Tallman. Um, there was a whole book of uh, regulations about do's and don'ts for staff, uh, which my neighbor across the street, who's actually a professional, he's the only professional voiceover artist in this thing he did. Um, and, and then finding other, other pieces um, uh, from the Rhode Island Historical Society, I found, I mean, from the Warwick Historical Society, I found um, these wonderful real estate ads for Lakewood, which is a Warwick suburb um, close by, and, the, and, the, and it had a small line that ran all the way to Lakewood. Um, so, so there are all these hysterical ads about uh, people proclaiming, I haven't had malaria since I moved to Warwick, <laughs> I mean, to, Lake, to Lakewood, or it's a, it's, a, it's a clean, wonderful place where you can raise your chickens. Um, Not your children, your chickens. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, no, there were, I think, yeah, the, the, the children did feature in. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I mean, serious, serious topics about how actually their children were no longer ill, having moved out to this clean place from mm. crowded uh, suburbs. I must say the... The one source that th this always really annoys me is how we can't get access to the Providence Journal's archives, and they're highly, highly restricted. Uh, and I, I, I went in and tried to look. It just is too time consuming. But through the Cranston Public Library, I found access to some older papers, one called the Providence Times and Another one, I think, that was a, a Cran an older Cranston paper from the 1900 to 1920. Uh, and they had some good ad. They had actual ads for Edgewood when um, describing how, okay, you know, come, the, there's the new electric line, low taxes, and these big lots that are available. Um and uh, and so that was that was very very useful. Um, so um, you know, as I said, it became a real COVID kind of project. I did also find uh, at the William Hall Library here in the neighborhood, Cranston Library, they were holding the collection archival collection for the Edgewood Yacht Club, uh, and there were some nice uh, family photographs from. The period, you know, one even showing a new construction in the neighborhood and uh, people in these wonderful 1890s gowns. Um, so it went from there. Um, we, in association with making the film, I worked with the city of Cranston and with the Edgewood Waterfront Preservation Association um, to uh, set up a site where the sculpture would be, and we have a historic marker um, with the, about the history, and it's actually right at the um, the the corner of Narragansett Boulevard and Sefton Drive, which was the end of the line uh, of the streetcar line. Um, and uh, as noted in the film, because we have we have the schedules, the the uh, the line would start at the first 
first one was at first run was at 5:56 a.m. and uh, uh, it would run every 10 minutes till 6 p.m. and then you know a little longer delays all the way until 2:20 a.m. in the morning. Which when I thought about it, some, you know, sometimes we complain about the car traffic noise on Narragansett Boulevard, but then I realized that the screeching and noise of the streetcars might have been much worse, especially that early in the morning. Yeah. So you you talked already about these ads that you found kind of advertising these neighborhoods. So it really seems like these trolley cars were the reason that a lot of these suburbs kind of developed the way that they are today. You include a lot of photos of, of houses that are still around and what they look like today. Um, so I thought that was really interesting because like you said, the town didn't even really, wasn't even aware of these tracks. And a lot of people nowadays don't really think about this, but it really shaped how a lot of these neighborhoods look. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's not alone in that. There, there are other, other neighborhoods uh, in, uh, in Cranston and Warwick um, that, that, were, that were shaped by that. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, if you look at the, the construction patterns, I mean, our, like our house is 1929, and it's really one of the later houses in the neighborhood um, because there was a, just an explosion of building uh, right after the electrification of the lines. There, there had been um, a horse-drawn line on Broad Street starting in 1868. Um, and it it spurred a little bit of development in Patuxent Village, perhaps, but that was too long. It was about an hour ride to the center to downtown Providence. Um, mostly, it was used for people who would come out to the yacht clubs and to roads on the on the Patuxent, which was very active. Um, a lot in the film, you'll see you see a lot of uh, of these beautiful postcards of people boating on the Patuxent, uh, the dance hall. Um, and it's not the same building that, uh, there, I think there's several, they've had several, they had several fires. Uh, but of course that's still an ongoing institution and the yacht clubs are still there. Um, all again, <laughs> one, one had three different buildings because of hurricanes and, it, uh, very sadly, the Ed, the uh, Edgewood one had had a fire some years ago, but they've done a nice job of rebuilding that. Um, and and this uh, it really was. Um, I I suppose also what's Washington Park in Providence, you know, was was all, which was along the line was was shaped, and that was. Uh, and I've, I saw some ads for housing construction in there, but that was a denser, you know, those were smaller lots and denser um, housing pattern. Edgewood really was developed as a middle and upper class uh, neighborhood. Um, and a, another impression I got from walking the doc documentary is it seems like, which you said that's kind of the, the, the through line of these guides for how to use the line for leisure, it seems like it really allowed lower class people to have a lot more mobility than they had ever previously had. 
in terms of going places and getting around. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, it was, uh, a, I mean, a nickel const constituted fair amount of money, and especially if you're taking a family, you know that that that's that's a lot more. But um, that they could they could uh, the lines went all over the state, and you could go all the way down to Narragansett Pier, um, and um, it, so it gave access to beaches, uh, to, and part of the, the and actually, uh, in, even within our neighborhood, coming out from Providence to um, just across the border from Providence, there was an Edgewood Beach. Um, that, that, that area, which is now the Port of Providence and, and Johnson of Wales, um, all of that was beaches and, um, and they were, uh, clam chowder, chowder kind of, uh, houses with people would come out. Um, the officially, you know, it eventually became, <laughs> was, I, I, I it, it was deemed too polluted by the late thirties and those beaches shut down. I have to believe that they were plenty polluted <laughs> before then, <laughs> because of course, uh, in the industry that dominated central Providence, uh, just poured everything in, into the, the Wenasquatucket and the, and you know, what becomes the Providence river. Um, but, um, in any case, at least these these were places where people could come for some some relief. So, what was your favorite aspect of putting the documentary together? Well, it, it's um, I guess working working with that the the narrative from Mariana Tallman's uh, accounts, which are very detailed. So. Um, I could, I could, in the film, I can piece together those journeys with contemporary photographs, um, as well as finding some archival ones of the, of the same places. Um, and, um, um, and then, and then also inserting, um, all kinds of quirky things The the, the, uh, actually, it was a it was a an old librarian, a friend of mine, who he he discovered these uh, ac these railroad commission reports that were issued every year, and they had two sections. They had a street railroad section, and then they had the the regular uh, steam railroad section, and it had ex extremely detailed accident reports every accident that took place um, on the in the, on the, with the, regards to the streetcars is noted with the name of the person where it took place what time and the doctor that treated them and while some of it's quite tragic there there's uh, all kind of course all kinds of deaths and there's ch children who get run over and trolleys running into horse carriages but a lot of it's kind of funny, <laughs> like the guy who who was uh, trying to extinguish his cigar his cigar from the streetcar and breaks his knuckle because the runs past a telephone pole, or um, 
somebody who's injured because his hat blows off and he runs <laughs> off after it, which he wasn't paying attention to the admonitions from Mariana Tallman to <laughs> always secure your hat when you're on, on the trolley. I know it was very like specific and detailed, like kind of warning about how you should have your hat secured. I, I found that very interesting. She says a min a minimum of three hat pins. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she said men and women too. I didn't even know men wore hat pins. That's a whole other thing. No, men men would not. That would oh, okay. have that would have been the women. The men. Yeah. The men All would right. Have had that to makes more sense. Hold on to their hat. <laughs> just, just hold yeah. it down. Right. Right. <laughs> um. Actually, another little fun part was um, through the New York Public Library, I found this whole collection of sheet music. Um, so I, I went through it. Again, you can, you can search by theme. So I found a whole trove of sheet music about trolleys and streetcars, um, including, including some that were really disturbingly racist and anti-Semitic, would you believe? Um, <laughs> would you believe in the turn <laughs> of the century? Right, well, <laughs> or any time. Well, that's fair. But, uh, but actually in a published, in a published, uh, yeah, published score. Yeah. Um, but so I found, I found a couple that I really liked and, um, I had a good friend of mine, Ed Rashid, who's a musician, uh, sit down and and record them, uh, and with a little, he could put a little organ music with it. So so uh, we hear we hear some of those to get a taste to the music of the times. Uh, so that yeah, that I really enjoyed. It really is evocative of a, of a different time period, the documentary. It really does kind of give you a feel for um, life then and, and an aspect of life then that you don't really think about, which is this elaborate public transit system. Right, right. Um, which, interestingly, it's, it's a, a fairly short time period because the heyday really lasts from... In terms of real use, electrification, which starts in 1891-1892, and then, as noted in the documentary, by 19, it really reached its peak in Rhode Island in 1923, and then starts to go downhill as uh, more and more people buy automobiles. Um, it does go on, you know, into the 40s and 50s, and of course, it's the system sadly is hanging on. Um, Scott Avedisian, who's the chair of the of uh, Ripta, came to the uh, the ceremony when we opened the the, the sculpture and and sign, and was proud to note that at at some point soon, some some high proportion of ridership will actually be again run it riding on electric powered vehicles. Yeah, electric buses. Electric buses, right, right. So we're we're taking full we're, circle. We're going back 150 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think the electric buses are a little more comfortable and maybe a little less dangerous. Uh, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if they have the romance. It's fair. Of, of the streetcars, they they also. Um, 
you know, the, to, the, 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 they had both open cars and closed cars. So the, and the open cars would only be used in the warmer months, uh, which is, you know, quite an investment to have mm. half a fleet that, um, that's not being used in, in, in the, in the colder periods. Um, and that probably lasts. I, I think they, by the twenties, those were, those were probably gone. You know? Um, the other thing when you do a subject like this is, uh, you can, f you, you can find anything on the internet and, and find experts on every aspect of the subject. So, um, I, I, when the, when the, uh, Workmen were pulling up those tracks on Narragansett Boulevard, and and I asked them to cut pieces for me. They said, "This is the this is the toughest material we've ever ever tried to cut." Um, so I had to go and look look that up, and of course I found some people who could tell me the proportion of metals in. <laughs> those tracks and but also because the tracks were so heavily used it had it had some effect on condensing the metal itself or something something like that which was which was interesting mm -hmm. um and uh i also remember going on uh in a on a facebook page finding all these aficionados of streetcars who post things all the time and old pictures from all over the country. And it, it, it is amazing to realize how extensive the streetcar systems were all over the U.S. It, even smaller Midwestern or Great Plains towns and cities had systems. Wow. Um, and... Uh, in one of them, I, 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 so I posted a query because I remembered as a kid, the last streetcars when I, after we came back from Europe, lived in Washington and there, the last one I think was phased out in 1960 or something like that. So I posed a question about, well, where did those streetcars go? And some guy replied and said, uh, half of them were sold to Barcelona and half of them went to, um, Sarajevo. <laughs> believe it or not oh all right so we will include a link in the show notes but the documentary end of the line the tracks that shaped our rhode island streetcar suburbs is available freely on i never know how to say that vimeo vimeo, vimeo. okay <laughs> um so like i said so we will include a link it's a little over 40 minutes and if you are interested in the history of cranston's edgewood neighborhood or if you just want to see rhode island in, in a different time and in a different way than you've you've seen it before um i encourage you to check it out so we end the show with a segment i call the last chapter where we talk about a library or bookish related question so i thought i would ask uh what's one book that you always recommend to everyone or you know that you end up recommending a lot oh actually this is a I'll, this is a funny one um this goes way back and, and it's funny how it made such an impression on me but um and i can't remember who the who the author was but it's called the boston strangler um, and it, and it's, uh, it was written in the seventies, I suppose, you know, not very long after the incidents. 
And it, the fascinating thing about about that book was, of course, it's a true crime book, which is very popular today. But um, the investigation, as as they looked at all these murders, which mostly took place in apartment buildings in Boston, um, it was like those, you know, we, when you have a disaster sometimes and it strips the whole wall off of a, off of a house so that everything's exposed. You, you, you see all these, all these, uh, all these individual apartments. It was like this had done this for the whole city of Boston, because as these detectives were investigating, um, around the murders, they'd uncover all these bizarre situations about the population of people who lived in that same building. Um, so that it, 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 it's, it's not just the, it's not the crime part that's actually interesting. It's the whole, as a kind of sociological expose of the city of Boston, um, mm -hmm. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. Um, I can't remember that. I'm sure you can come up with the with the, with the author. Um, as a as a as a funny side story, um, I made a film some years ago about my the the my the training of my Peace Corps group. We went to Kenya in 1968, um, and we were trained in. In North Dakota, that's where we were sent to learn Swahili, which is very, very strange. We were put on a an old uh, cavalry base in the in next to Bismarck, North Dakota, and then we lived with with Sioux Indian families uh, on on um, on the reservation for several weeks um, to see how we would fare. Well, one of our guys got stuck in a trailer tending chickens for two weeks. <laughs> And he couldn't get out of there. He had no car. And he said there were only two books in the whole place. And he read each one eight times. And one of them was Thoreau's, uh, whatever it is in the woods. And the other one was the Boston Strangler. <laughs> <laughs> so this idyllic, romanticized kind of like tome about the wilderness and, and, uh, and, uh, Humanity's urban, moving away from that and murder. Urban reality, urban reality, <laughs> and, and him and him stuck with with hundreds of chickens in the middle of the prairie. <laughs> that is definitely an interesting situation to find oneself in. So. Thank you for joining us and thank you everyone for listening. If you would like to reach out to us to answer our last chapter question or just to reach out to the show, you can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. And you can also reach out to us via social media with the hashtag downtimecpl. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. 
The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more downtime. Oh, I just closed the tab that I needed. And I will get my question back. Do, do, do. Oh, here we go.